Well, good morning, everyone. How you doing? You are the best group of scooter inners that I have seen in quite a while. So thanks for doing that. We like to be close here. Um, the uh, the phrase in that song we just sang, "Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it." I think is an apt description of the struggle we all face as broken, sinful human beings. I mean, even you know, even as those who've experienced the grace of God found in Jesus, even as Christians, our tendency uh, in life is not to necessarily and deliberately turn away from God, but to unintentionally drift, to wander. Uh, wander away from the God we say we love, uh, and more importantly, from the one who loves us. Now, I don't know, maybe that's not true for you, but uh, it's certainly true for me. And frankly, my guess is we all experience this kind of wandering at some point or another in life. And so over the next few weeks, uh, I would like for us to explore together what we can do to avoid what I call spiritual drift. Now, uh, if you haven't made the connection already, the title of our new series, Habits, is a takeoff of a New York Times bestseller by Charles Duhigg. Uh, I don't know if any of you have read this. I've seen it. It's a fascinating book. It's on the science of habit formation. And Duhigg writes in the book, he says, most of the choices we make each day may feel like the product of well-considered decision-making, but they are not. They are habits. And though each habit means relatively little on its own, over time, the meals we order, what we say to our kids each night, whether we save or spend, how often we exercise, and the way we organize our thoughts and work routines have enormous impacts on our health, productivity, financial security, and happiness, i.e., he's saying little things we do a lot make a big difference. Uh, in the book, Duhigg goes on, he cites how, according to research done by Duke University, more than 40% of the actions people perform each day aren't actually decisions, but habits. Now, if that's true, here's my question. As Christians, what habits can we intentionally develop that will help us avoid spiritual drift by somehow inviting God into our daily lives? You know, what things can we do on some kind of a regular basis that will put you and me in a place where we're more aware of God, where we have a greater sense of his presence, where we gain sight, insight to his will and, and find the strength to pursue it? I.e., you know, what if we established habits that can transform us into deeply spiritual men and women? I think that would be a pretty good thing. Over the centuries, what we are referring to as habits have also been described by others as spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. Uh, Dr. Richard Foster is a well-known pastor, theologian, and author, and he's written quite extensively on the topic. And he asserts, and this is his opinion, that shallow Christianity is the biggest challenge facing the church today. In his book, Celebration of Discipline, Foster writes, Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent or gifted people, but for deeply spiritual people. And Foster goes on, he stresses the point that every single one of us can be deeply spiritual. He says, we must not be led to believe that the disciplines are for spiritual giants alone, and hence beyond our reach. Far from it. God intends the disciplines of the spiritual life to be for ordinary human beings. In fact, the disciplines, he says, are best exercised in the midst of our normal daily activities. Let me tell you something. You know, like most people, I, I kind of bristle when I hear the word discipline. It freaks me out a little, you know. So for me, the idea of habit, a habit seems more accessible, more palatable. And so uh, I want to talk with you about developing habits, good habits, that can help shape our daily lives and in the process transform us 
and deepen our walk with God. So let's start off by defining the word habit itself. What What is a habit exactly? Well, a habit is an acquired behavior pattern regularly followed until it has become almost involuntary. In other words, it's the practice of doing something so often, you know, over and over and over again, that it becomes just a normal part of daily routine and due to its frequency impacts our lives. In terms of spiritual growth and transformation, what kind of habits do I have in mind? Well, for example, there are two common habits uh, that we talk a lot about here and, and do a lot here at Parkview. The first is uh, Bible reading and Bible study. You know, it's the, the habitual act of immersing ourselves in Scripture, whether it's individually, whether it's with a friend, whether it's in life groups, whether it's on Sunday morning. It's, it's intentionally learning and applying to our lives the truth of what God says is right and just and healthy and good. This, this spiritual habit is modeled in the Old Testament by the psalmist who says, Lord, says, Lord, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word is a lamp for my feet. It's a light on my path. I meditate on it day all day long. In other words, the psalmist was saying, God, I, I, I'm habitually reading and processing and reviewing and applying your word to, to my life and to my experience. Let's be clear about it. I mean, the practice of, of, of scripture study, scripture reading, isn't, it isn't just about education and gaining more biblical information that we can then spout off and, and impress our friends with. It's about having our thoughts and our behaviors impacted uh, by God's truth, enabling us then to respond uh, in a more godly way to to uh, to the joys, to the hurts, to the pressures, to the fears, to the disappointments, and relationships of life. Uh, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that it's really about being. He says it's about being transformed first by the renewing of your mind. He says, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, uh, and perfect will. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul writes and explains to the church. He says, look, all Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, the spiritual habit of, of Bible reading, Bible study, is important to me. Hopefully, it's important to all of us. It's important to us as a church, certainly. Another common habit that we highly encourage here is corporate worship. You know, uh, it's the act of getting together each week as Jesus followers, praise God to acknowledge his work in our lives, you know, to encourage one another uh, in our spiritual journey, uniting our gifts, our abilities, our our efforts, our resources for the purpose of bringing the good news of God's love and grace in Christ to our community, to our world. I mean, you talk about a good habit, this is a really good habit. In fact, scientists are finding more and more empirical data that proves worshiping God is a very healthy thing. Uh, for example, if you go online to WebMD and you and, and find under the subheading, Go to Church, Live Longer, you can read uh, 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 how medical studies are revealing that regular church attendance adds to the quality and longevity of life. Researchers report people who attend religious services at least once a week are less likely to die in a given period of time than those who attend l- less often. Evidence from over 1,200 studies show a direct link between faith in God and positive health benefits, including protection from illness, coping with illness, and faster recovery from illness. Isn't that fascinating? It's fascinating to me, and for me, actually, I don't don't know about you, but for me, it begs the question, should atheists then pay a higher uh, insurance premium? (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm just asking the question. I'm just looking for a break here. Just looking for a break. Uh... You know, if, if, if religious commitment and spirituality are scientifically linked to a person's well-being, shouldn't it then carry implications for public health care policy and costs? I'm thinking so, but that's just me. Now, unfortunately, the busyness of our culture tends to impact our church attendance, our worship attendance. 
on any given Sunday morning for us here, Parkview, upwards of 40% of our people won't be here. Upwards of 40%. Because the truth is, we're very, as human beings, we're very easily sidetracked. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I think the, the, the adversary of God would love nothing more than to keep us apart. Even in the early church, there was a struggle with this. Christians were tempted to let other things displace, you know, their, uh, their worship, their, their, their commitments, uh, which is exactly why the writer in, in the book of Hebrews says, hey, he writes the church, says, hey, don't give up meeting together as some are in the, the habit, the habit of doing. In other words, that's a bad habit. Conversely, the discipline or the habit of coming together once a week to worship and to, to study and to pray and to celebrate God's love and grace is a very healthy thing physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Look, God knows what he's talking about. He's created us. He knows what is best for us. So, you know, Bible study, corporate worship, two spiritual habits that we talk a lot about here and we do a lot. But over the next uh, few Sundays... Uh, I want to look at some habits that get a little less attention, like prayer and fasting, simplicity, solitude, silence, confession, gratitude and celebration, and patience. However, before we move to specifics, I figured there are several things about spiritual habits we probably need to make sure we understand. For example, it's, imp- it's important we recognize what spiritual habits or spiritual disciplines are not. Okay, First and foremost... They are not meritorious. In other words, these are not, you know, these are not religious type things that we do as a way to somehow impress God and earn His favor. These habits are not intended to demonstrate personal piety or to be used, uh, you know, to measure one's spirituality against others. They're not meant to foster arrogance or to be burdensome to us or to inflict guilt if and when we fail to do them. I mean, that is not what these things are about. So what are they about? What are they for? Spiritual habits are activities we choose to engage in that repeatedly bring us back to God and facilitate spiritual growth and godliness and joy. In his book, his classic book, Mere Christianity, the former atheist and and turned Christian thinker, author, C.S. Lewis, Oxford professor, all those things, brilliant man, says in his book, he says, you know, people often think of Christianity as a kind of bargain in which God says, hey, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. Lewis says, no. He says, that's not true. But he says, look, here's the fact. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into either a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself to be one kind of creature is heaven that is its joy its peace its knowledge and power to be the other means madness horror idiocy rage impotence and eternal loneliness lewis says each of us each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other now granted lewis wasn't talking specifically here about spiritual disciplines or spiritual habits but he is indeed pressing the point that the choices we make every day in life little ones and big ones influence who we are and more importantly who we are becoming and see the habits that we're going to explore in this series are those things that that we can choose to do that assist us in becoming men and women who are growing spiritually you know becoming more godly Uh, in a letter to the early church the apostle paul writes about god's desire and his goal for us as his people is that we each he says be conformed to the image of his son in other words from a biblical perspective spirituality and, and godliness means that you and I are becoming 
like Jesus. Not just strict rule keepers and a bunch of ritual performers or religious pontificators, but men and women who are genuinely becoming increasingly humble and compassionate and truthful and generous and gracious and patient and forgiving. As, as broken creatures, we are being spiritually transformed from the inside out growing in Christ-likeness. John Ortberg is a pretty well-known pastor and author. He's written a book on spiritual disciplines called The Life You've Always Wanted. And in the book, he talks about how some people, even some in the church, have a mixed up and twisted idea of what true spirituality really is. And Ortberg writes this. He says, you know, the misunderstanding of true spirituality has caused immense damage to the human race. Tragically, it is possible to think we're becoming more spiritual when in fact we're only becoming more smug and judgmental. Pseudo-transformation means becoming what Mark Wayne called a good man in the worst sense of the word. Listen, making sure we're clear on what true spirituality and what true maturity, spiritual maturity looks like is no minor thing. I mean, understand the religious experts in Jesus' day, they had their opinion of spirituality, which was mostly about externals. It was about religious works. It was about keeping a bunch of man-made rules and regulations and then looking down their noses at those who didn't or didn't do it as well as they did. But Jesus, Jesus brought the message of God's grace that focuses on the heart. Which is why Jesus and the religious guys often clashed, you know. And that's because, look, religious people tend to define spirituality one way. Jesus defines it another. In fact, when asked, when asked about it, Jesus summarized the spiritual life this way. He says, here it is. You ready? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Here's my, here's my reiki summary of that. Being truly spiritual means to love God, love people. It means being, it means being like Jesus. Are we? Are we growing in Christ-likeness? I mean, I suppose that's the, the challenging question, right? And to answer it, I think, requires some honest reflection. And really, how can we tell for sure? How can we tell for sure if we're settling for, for some kind of pseudo-religious spirituality instead of, of the real deal, true godliness? Well, in his interaction with the religious crowd, Jesus made a series of statements that I think when you read them and you think about them, uh, they, in, in a way they force us to ask certain reflective questions of ourselves. For example, uh, one day Jesus said to some of the religious leaders, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones and everything unclean. On the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Am I spiritually inauthentic? Which, which is just a nicer way of saying, am I a spiritual phony? And understand, Jesus showed great patience and compassion to those who came to him with no pretense. Crooks, liars, prostitutes, drunk, the sick, the poor, the educated, the uneducated. Men and women had no, who had no interest in pretending they were better than anybody else or better than they were or anything like that. Jesus was amazingly gentle with them. But those who came with moral arrogance, who viewed themselves as spiritually superior to others, well, Jesus labeled them for what they were, hypocrites. Religious pretenders who were preoccupied with appearing deeply spiritual when they were not. I mean, they looked the part, they talked the talk like many people do today, but when it comes to true spirituality, hey man, you, you can't fool God. You can fool others, but you can't fool God. Then Jesus said this about some of the religious crowd. He says, you know, everything they do is for people to see. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. Here's the question. Am I becoming more judgmental, entitled, exclusive, or proud? Am I or are you? Let me tell you something. Pride is an incredibly destructive thing. And it's a potential problem for anybody who takes spiritual growth seriously. I'll say that again. Pride is a potential problem 
for anyone who takes spiritual growth seriously. Why? Because in our sinful humanness, the very moment we begin to pursue godliness, we start to wonder why others aren't as passionate and virtuous and spiritually minded as we are. And we start to judge them. A few years ago, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law gave me this book for Christmas, The Gospel According to the Simpsons. Uh, Not a classic theological treatise, uh, but uh, an interesting read nonetheless. And in the book, uh, I was reminded of the Simpsons' Christian neighbors, the Flanders, who when Homer asked them one time where they'd been one summer, they said, we went away to Christian camp. We were learning how to be more judgmental. (laughs) Now, there are, there are two, two ways that we can respond to that. We can get all offended and get our noses bent out of shape because someone made fun of us. Or we can kind of laugh along with it, but then ask ourselves, is that how culture perceives us? Or more importantly than just cultural perception, is that the kind of people we are? Is that who we are? Is that the person I am? Arrogant and judgmental. That is not spirituality. Not according to Jesus. Jesus also said this about some religious people. He said, they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Here's the question. Am I becoming more approachable or less approachable? You know, in the first century, in first century Israel, lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, they did their best to stay away from anyone called rabbi because the rabbis were considered especially close to God. Rabbis, in turn, believed that their spirituality required them to stay away from the sinners, like they might catch something from them. And yet, ironically, the only rabbi who went after sinners and actually invited them into relationship and who they felt welcomed by was God himself. Jesus had this... This, this humble, spiritual differentness that drew people to him, especially the irreligious and the broken. Let me tell you something. I give you this permission. Day I start demanding people call me the right reverend pastor, grand exalted poobah, or something, something equivalent to that, is the day you can ask me to resign. True spirituality doesn't expect that. It doesn't demand such things. That's not making yourself approachable to people, to help people. Is the opposite. At another point, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Here's the question. Am I weary of pursuing spiritual growth? Am I worn out? Am I tired by this whole deal? And if so, my guess is, it's because just like many in Jesus' day, you have somewhere down the road confused the crushing, guilt-inducing demands of religion with true spirituality and what it means to be a Christian. Jesus said, I've, I've come not to burden you with more rules, but to free you by grace and give you rest. And then finally, Jesus said to the religious crowd, you blind guides, you, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. In other words, he was saying, you, some of you religious people, some of you focus on little things while ignoring the bigger thing. In the case of the Pharisees, they would carefully measure out and give away a tenth of their spices. But Jesus said that they were neglecting the more important matters of, of compassion and justice and mercy. They were ignoring people, which matter, who matters most to God. That's what matters most to God. And so here's our question. Am I measuring my spirituality in superficial ways? Am I focusing on the little things that really don't matter? I'm just kidding myself that they do. Look, I don't know how you've answered any of these questions. I'm hoping that this new series will help will help each of us more fully explore the idea of genuine biblical spirituality and provide God the opportunity to teach us and graciously speak into all of our lives and to bring us into a, a deeper relationship with himself. Um, and really, that's you know, that's... 
That's what spiritual habits or spiritual disciplines are about. That's what they do. They're activities that simply help us better engage with God by putting us in a place where we can be with him and we can can hear from him and we can receive from him, you know, the peace and and the security and the hope and the knowledge and the power and the joy, all the good things that God wants to give his people. Our problem is we're just too often preoccupied with a lot of other stuff and we're not ready to receive what God has for us. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis tells a story of his wife who one day was really busy, almost too busy for God. But he says she was haunted all morning as she went about her work with the obscure sense of God, so to speak, at her elbow, demanding attention. And of course, not being a perfected saint, she had the feeling that it would be a question of some unrepented sin or tedious duty. At last she gave in. I know how one puts it off, but at last she gave in and faced him. But the message was, I want to give you something. And instantly she entered into joy. And then Lewis writes this. He says, look, God wants to give you good things. He says, but you have to have the capacity to receive or even omnipotence can't give. And he's right. Here's the deal. God is at my elbow every day. God is at your elbow, wanting, longing for your attention. Not to just command you around or berate you, but to give, give you good things, to give all of us good things, peace, knowledge, hope, power, joy. And so the spiritual habits that we're going to talk about in the next few weeks, I believe if we establish, help put each of us in a place uh, to better to better receive all that God in his omnipotence wants to give. So I hope you I hope you come back and join me for it. Let's pray together. Father, I, I don't I don't I don't believe that most of us here in this room deliberately turn away from you, but we simply wander. We're prone to it. We we drift spiritually from you, the God we say we love, the God who loves us with an everlasting love. We tend to be drifters. But I think down inside, we want to avoid the drift. We want to be closer to you. We want to sense your presence. We want to sense your power. We want want the hope that you give us. We want it all. We're just so busy to receive. And even omnipotence can't force it on us. And so I pray over the next few weeks that you would help us understand these, these, these habits, these simple habits that if established in our lives will place us in a position to receive from you all the good things you want to give us. And even now, Lord, as we come together as your people for this habit, this discipline of of worship, we invite you to come in a special way, in a powerful way. We long to know you more. We long to to be with you, to be touched by you, to be spoken to by you, and to to know you deeply. And so we sing to your to your name and the majesty of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.